welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. As always, I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I am a senior staff research engineer at Mozilla and one of the regular panelists. And with me are my co-panelists, uh, Tyler. Tyler Bird, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Nell? I'm doing okay. Uh, it's it's overcast in Seattle, which is kind kind of the normal. We call it January here. It's January. been in the 50s and 60s, but it always gets yeah. hot after the Fourth of July. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here in Utah. It's uh, getting hotter, but uh, you know we're we're making do. We we made do entire house by having some ceiling fans put into all the rooms. So it's a very cooling effect, and it's nice. Uh, and I'm Tyler Bird. I work for Cengage, which is an education company, and I'm a senior platform engineer there. And uh, just happy to be back on the podcast this week. Thanks. And also with us is our regular panelist, Jeff. Jeff, how's it going? I am doing great. How are you doing now? I'm uh, doing fantastic. All right. So yeah, things are good here in uh, Chicago as well. It's really been uh, warm and, and a bit humid here, which is pretty typical. So um, ceiling fans are good, but air conditioning is better. <laughs> I use both, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a good combination. Um, I'm but, very uh, liberal with my cooling effects. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, defense in depth. You need as much as you can get. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, the places so, where central air conditioning is, is standard, it's not standard here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I do uh, cybersecurity consulting um, and education. And uh, hey, just glad to be here. We're glad to have you. And I'm very glad to have our special guest uh, this week, Talia. Talia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Talia. I'm a developer advocate at Split Software, Split.io. Um, and so just a little bit about me. I actually started out in QA and test engineering and automation and um, I worked for initially for Visa as a QA engineer and then made my way over to WeWork and worked on the meetup team a little. And then I moved to Tel Aviv and worked with the Tel Aviv team a little bit. Um, and while I was working at WeWork, I started speaking about testing in production and feature flagging. And I kind of found my passion of public speaking and um, dev advocacy and um, learning from other people and and that's where I kind of found this this passion and then I it kind of like led me into this new direction of being a dev advocate um so that's kind of what I'm what I'm doing now so now I'm a dev advocate at split and I get to work with um developers from everywhere and meet new people and travel and um yeah and I get to work with a really cool product so I'm happy <laughs> Awesome. We are happy to have you here. And as you mentioned, uh, the t topic of this week's episode is testing in production. Now, listeners, I know that some of you are probably having shivers go up your spines at those words. <laughs> it's a little scary, but uh, Talia is going to take us through it, uh, why it's important, how you do it, and uh, what you need to be successful. This episode is sponsored by Gravitational. As your team and cloud infrastructure grows, you may want to reevaluate how you access SSH servers and Kubernetes clusters. Gravitational Teleport is an emerging open source replacement for OpenSSH, which was built for modern cloud workflows. Teleport is opinionated. It does not allow SSH keys, and instead it insists on certificate-based authentication, making it dead easy to set up and use. Teleport is fully compatible with your SSH and Kubernetes tooling, comes with a beautiful web UI and an audit log, 
and it allows users to access servers outside of data centers like IoT devices. It was called Teleport because it creates the illusion that all your company's servers are in the same room with you, even if some of them are self-driving vehicles. Download Teleport on gravitational.com slash teleport or find it on github.com slash gravitational slash teleport. Yeah, I can do that. Should I do that now? Please do. Great. Okay. Yeah, just all the answers to that in one question. We just like to ask one question and then see where yeah. we can go. Okay, so like I said, I started out um, at Visa and at um, other companies that were just you know doing the norm of testing in a staging environment, running end-to-end test automation scripts in staging, and then rolling them out to, to production. Um, and then when I was interviewing for this other team, um, they told me, I, I was interviewing for a meetup, and they told me that they don't have a testing environment that they test in production. And I kind of go through this in my talk where I was like so confused and I didn't understand like what do you mean, like people don't test in production, like that's what staging is for. That's why we have test environments so that you can't mess things up in production. And um, once I started working there, I started using feature flags and I started understanding like why it was so much benefit, so much more beneficial. And all of my years I'm like, corporate like visa you know in in that like corporate mentality of like no this is the way things go but then there was like this whole other side of like this innovative tool that was at the end of the day like i don't care if my feature works in staging i care if it works in production and and feature flags really make that possible um so through through feature flagging um you're able to release your software to production behind a feature flag test it in production, um, target like your internal teammates, target the people that you want to see the feature first, and then turn on the feature flag later once you know that your feature is working. So um, this process just, it completely shifted the way that I think about testing and, and it made software testing so much, um, so much more beneficial. Like you know that your features are working in production. Like I don't care if they work in staging. That's not where my users are going to use the the features. Uh, something I, I that came up when we were doing the prep for this episode was uh, the knowledge that companies spend millions of dollars trying to get their staging environment to be an exact replica of prod. I sometimes think the barriers some people have to having a staging environment is their AWS bill. Uh, can you tell us a little bit a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah, companies spend so much money trying to make their um, staging environments an exact replica of production. And I was speaking to this company last week and they said, yeah, we have eight staging environments and then and then our code goes to production. And I just thought, oh my goodness, like you test in, you test in one staging environment and then you release another staging environment on and on and on for eight times. And then you release to production and it's, and it's you know, eight different places plus production is nine. Like, what does that do for you? Um, and, you know, some, there are some cases where, you know, you can't test in production because of, you know, data and privacy and um, things like that, which is, which is valid. But I feel like the core, the, the heart of your, of your testing and of your confidence should really be um, in production. And yeah, I, I think if you just have like a basic um, website architecture, like, you know, um, web servers and, you know, um, just a basic memory based cache and, um, like basic support and, um, 
like nothing fancy. It, I did a ton of research and it costs like 100000 to $150,000 per year for each environment. And that's like not including, you know, all the add-ons that you can have. But yeah, it gets expensive. And I feel like especially now when companies are trying to figure out ways to scale back and um, make the most of their of their money, it's it's something to think about. Yeah, I agree. Um, unfortunately, staging is not the only thing we need to kill. Um, a lot <laughs> of times we have staging and QA and ints and dev, right? Yeah. We have a dev environment on the cloud that isn't their laptop, right? Uh, and so not only do we pay for it once, but it can have a multiplied, a multiplied, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It keeps, to add, it keeps adding up. Yeah. Um, and so I like what you did as you wrote the staging breakup letter <laughs> yes. uh, to say, uh, it's not you, it's me kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and that, I think that's really good. And we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But um, so what, how do we get people to understand that they can, they really just need dev and, and, and prod and uh, what, what are some of the places where you've been successful in, in helping people let go of the staging myth, myth so, so to speak? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that comes with testing and production, which Nell touched on in the beginning, is people are just afraid. Like they don't, like when you say testing and production, like it just kind of is this weird out of the world thing that people haven't really heard of or they don't know how. And it's, I feel like they only think of like the negatives and they only think of like, you know, what, everything that could go wrong. And it's hard to think about like, wait, if this does work and if we are able to do this safely, safely, how much better is our testing process going to be? How much higher quality is our product going to be? Um, so I feel like that's the first thing is like getting over the initial fear and like this lack of trust in your system. And when you invest in the right tooling and the right architecture, like you're making an investment in your product and like that's going to help you later on because you're saying like, I trust my product. I trust our process. Like I'm using feature flags. I'm doing this safely and look at this great thing that like I shipped this, this uh, feature out and it's bug free because, you know, I tested it in production and I fixed all the bugs ahead of time. So I would say the first thing is just like getting over the fear. Um, and then I would say the next thing is just shifting like your company's uh, testing culture. Um, right now, I feel like only in, in a lot of companies that, that I've experienced and especially the ones that I've worked at, um, only the QA engineer or the automation engineer is responsible for product quality. So, you know, it, the, the code would get sent to QA and then they were responsible for testing it, only them. Um, and then they would kind of have to like sign off, like, is this good to go or not? I feel like there needs to be a shift in that and, and the, the, whole, the whole product team, like the entire team needs to be accountable and responsible for the product quality because it's not just like a one person thing like everyone is responsible for the quality of of your product so I think like once everyone like takes responsibility and like everyone understands like we're testing in production like we all need to own up to this um and once it becomes like more of a team effort and not just like one person um I think that will that'll help a lot too yeah here in Utah there was some in the middle of 2020 COVID all over the place, everything that's happened up to this point, 
Um, there was a fire on Saturday that uh, shut out power in my house for four hours. So fun. Um, and I can't sleep without my CPAP. So couldn't sleep all night. And then uh, the next day or a couple days ago, uh, flooding. So we're doing all the things this year. I think we didn't get the memo, but we're doing all the things. But I was saying to my wife, let's go and uh, help put sandbags up. And I was like, it's already done. They already did it. And what I'm, what I'm bringing this up is I think it resonates with what you're saying, which is if we distribute the work and we don't just put it all on one person's shoulder, it can get done much more quickly. Would you agree to that? Or what do you think yeah, about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's a team effort. And especially when the risk is high, like the reward is also really high. So um, yeah, it's definitely a team effort. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. So do you have like a step or a playbook that you type, type of go through? Like make sure yeah. everybody has a backup and they can test their backup before they even in introduce the tooling. What are some of the initial boots on the ground? First things you, you guys walk them through in your playbook. Um, so with the, the great thing about feature flagging is that it kind of acts as your risk mitigation. So between using the feature flags and going through a canary release, um, those really provide risk mitigation in case something goes wrong. Um, so with a, with a canary release, like you, you'll release the feature to 1%, 2%, whatever small percentage of users. And then once you know that it works in production, then you slowly roll it out. Um, and I always recommend that, especially for like first time testing in prod users or people who are just getting started. Um, and then with the feature flagging setup, it's, it's pretty intuitive just done in the UI and then in the code, it's like an if else statement. Like if you're targeted, then you get a certain treatment. And if you're not targeted, you get a different or existing treatment. I know a change I used to struggle with deploying in the past was something that involved a database migration. Mm -hmm. when part of the testing involved testing how the data interacted with the other data. Um, I tell people sometimes I personally took down AWS OpsWorks for two hours once because of a bad migration uh, to a dependency of OpsWorks. So how do you, how do you uh, test things like that or things that involve data interacting with each other in production? Yeah, okay, so there's a couple of things. I actually just wrote a blog post on database migrations with feature flags, um, and I think I think feature flags make database migrations easier um, and I'll explain it. So basically when you have a database migration, like I know there's the database migration where you move to different platforms and then there's like schema migrations, right? So um, I'm talking about like schema migrations here. So if you, if you have um, one database schema and you're moving to another database schema, Basically, there's a common misconception that like feature flags can only be used for like front end feature releases, but they can also play, play like a really big role in your architectural strategy. So like, for example, if you are adding, um, what was the example I used in my post? I say if you're adding a middle name to an existing 
schema. Like if you have first name and last name and you want to add middle name, um, the first thing you need to do is like add a new column to that database. So this is an additive change and it's backwards compatible. So if like no one's using that code, it's just sitting there. But like you can make the code changes to use the middle name and you should put the code changes behind the feature flag. And then the schema will work whether or not the flag is on or off. And then if you turn the flag off, it won't break anything. Um, so like the the safe and like recommended way to do it would be like to wrap your feature flag around the elements of your code base, not your database, so that if there's a problem with your code and you need to revert, like your database is still going to work. Um, does that make sense? Like you would you would wrap the the, the feature flag around the code, not like the database. Is that uh, blog published yet, or are you still yes. working on it? Okay. Yes, it yeah. Is. If you can share that with us, we'd love to add it to the show notes. Totally. Yeah. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. So yeah, I, I, I was just uh, sort of listening to this and, and I thought it was really interesting to sort of jump back a couple of steps. When, we, when you were talking about, um, you know, you think about corporate America, and I've spent a lot of time consulting in that, you know, in, in those types of environments where, you know, it's not just one application. They probably have many applications and many staging environments, or to Tyler's point, you know, many environments that are, you know, non-prod. You know, that's what we would talk about. How many non-prod environments do you have? And it's just like, and then you start to look at it and say, okay, well, um, you know, the expense of it, as you were pointing out, is so high. And from the security standpoint, we would always be concerned that you have all these non-prod environments that are still connected to everything else on the network. They're typically ignored. No one's worried all that much about making sure that patch levels are up to par on, you know, some QA environment or some dev box or whatever it is. Um, sometimes you've got at least elements, if not a lot of production data stored in there. Um, and it just, you know, what you're saying and the idea of sort of moving away from this, this whole paradigm of having all these environments, um, you know, it just seems to me you're not only you're, you're saving the money, but you could be reducing a ton of risk. And, um, you know, and, and I think there's, there's all this culture of like not going that direction, which was, you know, Tyler, you've been really pointing that out. Um, and that's definitely a barrier, but it seems to me that, you know, even from the data governance side and all that, I, I, I still think you could probably reduce a lot of your risk by testing in prod, even if we, are, you know, even if we're talking about, um, you know, sensitive information like PII or PHI or or anything else. I'm curious, you know, sorry, that was a long preamble, but I'm curious if you've seen organizations that have sort of taken that mindset and said, hey, yeah, this is a complete mess of money and risk that's tied up in all these environments. It's time to like toss them out the window um, and move forward with, with this idea. Yeah. And the biggest thing with, with these like corporate environments, these corporate companies, like the, the tech organizations that I've worked with is that most of them, um, most of them are practice waterfall, waterfall practices as opposed to agile. So they have, um, like, uh, I, I know Visa had like one release every quarter, I think. So it was like every three or four months they would do a release. Um, so I think the first thing is like, you need to get into like that agile mindset of like, 
you know, ship faster, like less documentation. That, that's the other thing. Like maybe we'll come back to this later, but a lot of companies are just like so focused on documentation. Like they're not focused on what's like really important. So yeah, there was a lot of like unnecessary testing documentation that had to be done for these like corporate companies. And um, that I also think needs to be. Oh, phew. I thought you were saying documentation is not important there for a second. No, no. Documentation You're just saying is important. That man, like, what I heard was the manual process is not important. Yes. So like for one of the when I started out as a QA engineer, I would have to write um, uh, so much test documentation. I would have to write um, a test findings report, a test um, – Oh my God, there's so many reports. Test findings, um, test plan, test uh, strategy, test. I could go on, but you know, for every feature, there was, you know, five or 10 documents that had to be written about testing in a, an environment that's not production to, get, to then move to an environment, another environment that's not production, um, where that time could have been used um, a little bit more strategically. Yeah, um, way too much paperwork for just trying to do theoretically one thing. Yeah. Do you um, think that this just feature flagging and, and some of the these more modern or agile approaches will work in a place that is not already agile? Um, because I, I did a contracting gig um, with my former employer, Stark and Wayne, and we, we were on site with a, with a big enterprise company. Uh, and they, they had split everybody up and they said, okay, now we've split everyone up. So we're agile. And it's like just splitting <laughs> people into a bunch of teams doesn't make you agile. It just means that these people will only work on these 15 sets of features or, or functionality in the app. And then when it goes outside of this functionality, they don't do that. And so it's kind of a backwards pretend at agile. How, so I guess where I'm going with with a possible question here is like where where can somebody who's who's trying to implement agile but still has these these uh, manual processes look to eliminate some of these things to get prepared because you probably wouldn't be able to start where can they where can they eliminate to get to the point where they can start to enable feature flagging and things like that what can they eliminate yeah. I would say first, like try to automate as much as you can. Um, so just ma think of like all the manual processes that you have in terms of, you know, your code deployment or your um, different, different parts of your feature release. Each company's setup is a little bit different. So just, I would say, think about what you're doing manually and what you're, you're repeating. Um, and I would start with automating those. Um, yeah, and I, I feel like after you do that, you'll you'll understand a little bit better how you're, like the gaps in your process. Yeah. Yeah, and then maybe the documentation could come in and just understanding what it is that we're, we're doing over and over again. But some people then do the templates and they're like, okay, well, it's a template. All you're doing is copying and pasting your, your cargo culting, the old code and reusing it. That's, that's not necessarily... A framework so yeah um, I agree with the with the automation stuff um, but uh, that automation is not necessarily always solve all the problems it just it's got to be used for the right problems right um, and so what have have been some of the times where you're you meet the resistance 
is it's a resistance always the fear resistance or is it a do we have enough time for that <laughs> we've still got know. plenty of time <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of an open-ended question yeah. so what does that spark in you and what what's an example um there's there's always resistance there's always people who say like testing in production is never going to work like it's just not going to work it's not for us no 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 like there's always people who are like stuck in this um mindset and I, I say this in my talk where like I don't care about those people like they're not my target audience like if you really don't think testing and production will work and you're not open to making it um part of your process then don't um yeah it's so gotta start um, with an open mind essentially yeah yeah like I don't like these negative Nancys who you know go around and say that uh you know, we have to stick by the book and we can't make any um, innovation changes and we can't do these like new, implement these new ideas and these new things. Like they're not my target audience. Like I don't really pay attention to those people. And like at the end of the day, like to those people, like staging will never fully represent production. Like I don't care what your argument is. Like they're different environments. There's different data. There's going to be different test results. So you can tell yourself like whatever you want, but like those environments are different. Something right. I've, I've found is you can't get a mind change until someone uh, experiences the pain yeah. of what, okay. what it's supposed to help with. Like I remember I gave a talk once on refactoring and in the talk I introduced writing tests around the refactor before you change the code. I had a pretty hostile audience member get up to the uh, microphone during the Q&A time and tell me, this is a bad approach. You should just look at the code and write good code. And <laughs> maybe he hasn't had the experience of refactoring a really gnarly bit of code. I was showing refactoring a regular expression. And maybe he hasn't had the experience of refactoring a, re yeah, a really gnarly bit of code and having it break on him. But he will get that eventually. I guarantee if he stays in the, in the, in the industry, he will get that. Yeah. And I think that's why like testing and production resonates so well with people who are familiar with software testing and QA and, and development, like they've felt the pain, like they understand and they've experienced like how rough it is. Like I, I talk about this in my talk also where like, um, there's nothing worse than being so confident that your feature is working and you test it inside and out and you work with product and you make sure that you go through all the requirements and you work with development and make sure that you know, everything works perfectly. You fix all the bugs. Every, you know, you spent so much time on it. It works so well in staging and then you ship it to production and it breaks. Like there's literally not a worse feeling because there's nothing that you could have done. Like you don't, you can't, you can't blame yourself and it sucks. Well, all they have to do is enable feature flagging. And, <laughs> exactly. Right? That's Problem right. Solved. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I actually, I'm sold on it. You know, I think that it's a, it's a great thing, but what if your product is a platform? Like for me, the product is a platform. I, I help run at my company, our cloud uh, foundry platform. And it's, it's still kind of a, in that middle area of being a platform as a service, but it's also software as a service for developers. Mm -hmm. it just helps them push their app by just typing in CF push and then their app is supposed to just run. Yeah. Um, so what about people who are developing infrastructure as a service or platform as a service? I mean, is it just always the same thing, just feature flatting and, and, and automating certain things? And yeah. Or is, have you ever had people come back to you in, in that line of work that it's not software as a service and say, no, this won't work because um, 
of some other reason. So I think like the great part about feature flagging is like it allows you to do more than like just testing and production. Like testing and production is like one of the big use cases, but um, you can also use it as like a kill switch for your features. So like if you release something for your platform, like a new command or a new like, you know, process or whatever, and like it doesn't work, you can use the kill switch to turn it off um, and then fix it and then um, turn it back on. Um, you can also use it for like A-B testing and like experimentation. So if you want to experiment like which, you know, commands or um, parts of your platform are getting more traffic or getting more usage or, you know, getting more of like a certain metric, you can use it for that too. Um, but the flexibility and like the different use cases makes it, I think, a, a pretty beneficial tool. Uh, something that just popped in my head was thinking back to a couple jobs ago. We we would uh, for disaster recovery, um, and that's where my question is going to kind of wander towards. Which is, we had two sites. We actually had three sites. We had uh, one site to be the uh, active passive or the active. I can't remember exactly. You know the different ways it was set up, but essentially the failover site. And so we would be streaming logs from the database over to there so that if we needed to fail over, we could. Is disaster recovery ever part of feature flagging or is that just really a whole nother paradigm in your opinion? It is. Um, I don't have experience with disaster recovery, but I know that you can use, like you can direct like a certain percentage of traffic to like specific servers and then test like, things going down. Um, I don't have experience with that, but I know that it's possible. Yeah, something I think that is uh, related to that was I was, I was at, this was HashiCore 20, or HashiConf 2015, 2016, I was speaking at it, and I heard Adrian uh, Cockroft uh, speak, and one of the lines, and he, it was about disaster recovery, he worked for Netflix at the time, and something he said in his talk was, a, dis a disaster recovery data center that you've never failed over to is just a waste of money. Yeah. Because you don't know if it's going to work. Uh, exactly. So I've heard of, you know, places where every time they do a deploy or monthly or something, uh, they will switch everything over to the secondary data center. That becomes the primary one. And then the other one is the backup one. Then the next deploy, they'll, they'll switch back again. So they're using the environment constantly. Right. You know, what, what thing I'm curious about, um, you know, when you talk about automated testing, um, you know, one thing that we talk about in the security world a lot is, is getting better um, automated security testing, like sort of embedded with in the QA and the testing um, process. And I'm wondering if you're seeing a lot of teams that you work with um, trying to do that, you know, either with uh, feature flags or with other, you know, um, with other, I guess, paradigms or, 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 you know, more sophisticated ideas, because I think that's, that's something that really we want to try and embed in, in a better way. Um, so that, you know, again, sort of getting rid of silos and all that. But I'm, yeah, I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's, it, it's important to do like UI front-end, end-to-end testing. Um, but then I think in terms of like security, just to do API tests through like Postman or whatever automated um, tool that you use for that. Um, but yeah, I think lately in, in the times of like SOX compliance and like GDPR and, and all this like fun data stuff, um, it's definitely important to get those automated tests in your smoke suite as well. Um, yeah. 
Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Uh, something I was wondering is in one of your talks that we watched to prepare for this, you talk about having test data within your production database. Uh, yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I can. So the way that I like to set up feature flagging is to put my automation bots, so like my users that I use for automation, I target them inside of my feature flag with my development team. So while the feature flag is off, I'll target like the developers, the testers, product design, like everyone on my team, plus the automation bots. Um, and then I'll run the automation scripts while the feature flag is off. So like what the script will do is it'll log in as this test user and it'll have access to this feature because it's logged in as this user who's targeted in the flag. So it'll log in, it'll perform whatever actions that are supposed to be um, validated for this feature and then log out and like do teardown. And in the test, I hard code, um, you know, like just different variables of like, this is a test object on the page and I'm going to click on this test thing and do this, you know, um, at meetup, what, what, what we would do is like, I would create a test meetup group and I would um, create a test event and test some things in that flow. And then I would, at the end of the test, like delete that, um, delete everything that I created, like all the test data. And I would make sure that like, if my test user didn't find that test group or if it, is not able to create an event that's, you know, that has the Boolean is test. Um, if it's not able to do that, then the test will fail. So we have these like ways of identifying what is a test object and what's not a test object with these Booleans that are like, is test user or is test event or is test whatever. And that makes it really easy when we integrate with third parties also, because we tell them like any flows that we have that have, um, you know, this Boolean or like if we send you an API request and it has this header, like just know that it's a test and I want you to treat it, you know, in this other way or do this other thing. Um, but that's kind of how like I envision like having test data in production is like having having a differentiation between real data and test data with this Boolean. And then in your in your wherever you collect your data, so like data dog or looker or wherever you're you're getting this information back, you can say, I want to see um, I want to see everything except for, you know, everything that doesn't have like is test equals true or is test user is true. Um, and that makes it easy to differentiate. Yeah. Filter out the stuff that's not exactly uh, what you're looking for. Yeah. That sounds like a good method. Just randomly, I was thinking to myself, what do you, when you're talking about writing the code and, and getting into the, do you guys have any, um, what uh, kind of coder? Do you, what kind of coding tool do you use? And is there any sort of extensions? I use like uh, uh, Microsoft Visual uh, Studio uh, Code um, and just the open source one, not the Microsoft um, Visual Source. Which what do you use? And what kind of add-ons do you guys have other than your language support and that kind of stuff? 
Are you talking about like for split or for? Yeah. yeah so split, it, you, it's just an NPM like package that's that's installed. Um, I like VS Code also. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it's just yeah. an. NPM. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm really asking is like uh, when you have it in your coding environment, uh, what are some of the shortcuts that you probably take for granted? And it's one of my picks today. Um, I I moved recently and cannot find AAA batteries to save my life. So one of my picks today is AAA batteries because you need them and then you don't have them because you don't know where they are. So <laughs> that's an accurate <sighs> statement. Yeah. Yes. And so that's kind of in that same line. It's like, what is, what, what is maybe something you don't think about that's like you could give people that's a, um, a power, a pro tip of your work environments when you're trying to test this kind of stuff. Yeah. And does that spark anything? Um, so there's a framework called robot framework and it's really good. It's my preferred framework for automation. And the reason I like it is because it's a keyword driven, um, automation framework. And there's a bunch of different libraries that, that you can use to implement these tests. And basically it, it makes it easy for non-technical people. So like my product people and, you know, designers, like they can look at the test and know what it's doing without having to read any code. Cause all the code is like backend and like scripted in this other um, place. So I prefer robot framework. I've been a big fan for a long time. Cool. Yeah. Is it just robotframework.org? Yep. That's it. Okay. Awesome. We're going to add that to the show notes too. So thank so, you. That's great. And something else I'm wondering if you could speak to is I know when I've worked as a developer, having things that look like product specs, but it's actually executable code. Like I, I used to do Ruby on Rails development. So Cucumber or behavior driven development. Yeah. Um, I've found that to be tremendously helpful when I was working with, you know, let's say a product manager who doesn't have coding experience. I don't like saying non-technical because I think if you can do Excel, you're technical, uh, but that's an entire other argument. Um, but yeah, could you, could, it, does robot uh, enable that? Yeah, so with robot, you, you can do just like what you said, Gherkin with Cucumber, and it's just like simple BDD, like given when then statement. So like given you're a user, when you perform whatever action, um, then this should be the result. And that's how I frame my, um, frame my tests. And then when I'm ready to push them to production, I just show them to my product person and I say, hey, look at these things. Like it covers all the requirements and they can just read them and, and know exactly what's going on. And it makes like testing in production much easier because when a test fails in production, you want to know exactly what's happening. You don't want to have to like spend tons of time analyzing. Um, I've seen some like very strangely worded and like weird tests that like you just can't figure out what's going on. And I feel like BDD and Cucumber just like make it a lot easier to understand when a test fails. Yeah, I'm shaking my head and agreeing with you on that. It's, it's, um, I'm thinking back to that uh, fun contract that I did last year. And honestly, I wish I'd had this conversation and this knowledge that seven months ago, because it probably would have made that contract even better. We did, we, we felt like we did a good job. They were, they were happy, but yeah, uh, being able to, I think it would also help eliminate. So what I'm, this is the point I'm trying to add. Um, what we were talking about earlier, where there was a bunch of manual documentation and reports when you have it as behavior-driven development code in a, in a in that language that's very easy easy to read, uh, it is the documentation. It is uh, what will happen. That, but then it's the 
it's tied into automation and the BDD automatically does, um, you know, Cucumber and these type of tools automatically does what you're, what you documented saying, given this, when that's and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so I think that that, that is something that people should, should look into. Um, but sometimes people write things in languages that at first glance, they may assume have no testing frameworks like bash, but there's actually quite a few out there. You just kind of have to look for it. Yeah. So I think we, that's maybe a good takeaway is that people need to look for these tools and don't assume that they aren't there. Just like, don't assume that you can't ever uh, deploy to production. That's what we're yeah. also trying to tell people today. Totally. I completely agree. Um, and I think it's super important um, to have automated testing set up when you're testing in production. And I think that's kind of like a must in my opinion, because um, you need to snap your fingers and push a button and have all the tests run in a very short period of time and know that your code is not broken in, in production. And to run all those tests manually after you deploy is just like not scalable. Um, so normally I would say like, you don't have to have automation set up all the time, but when you're testing in production, it's like an absolute must. I heartily agree on that. All right. Well, we're starting to get toward the end of our show period. Anything else anyone wants to bring up or discuss before we move on to picks? I don't think I don't have anything this week, but I appreciate uh, Talia joining us and having a discussion on this. So it's been informative. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on to picks, uh, I'll go ahead and go first. Uh, so I have been revisiting a lot of my favorite sci-fi shows from the 90s uh, recently. Things like Star Trek Next Generation, DS9, Voyager, Babylon 5, etc. And it really feels like whenever I'm watching an episode from one of them that someone's giving me a big hug. Uh, not just because the screen's a little blurry uh, compared to uh, uh, y if you look at a sci-fi show that's uh, uh, filmed now, uh, there's, there's, it's a sharper focus now. But I think it, it just seeing the way morality and issues, it, seeing how they've been addressed in the past, how they're addressing them in the future, makes me feel a little better about how we can address them now. And one of those, uh, so I used to be pretty quiet about the fact that I really liked Star Trek Voyager when it aired, and I still really like it now. Uh, yes, some people say, well, real Star Trek fans don't like Voyager. Number one, that's gatekeeping and you shouldn't do that. Number two, it's just not true. The show went for seven seasons. Uh, and that, there was a reason for that, but that is my pick for this week. I've been revisiting a lot of the seven of nine episodes of Star Trek Voyager and enjoying them very much. And uh, Tyler, how about you? Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, as I mentioned, AAA batteries for the win. I'm going to go get some this this tonight because... I, I, I've reached three strikes and you're out. I have three different things that need it at this point. So it's, you know, I was going to use my uh, headphones that uh, have batteries, but uh, it's a good thing I, I buy multiple things at the store. I'm sure my wife appreciates that. Um, and I had some backups. The other thing I wanted to pick this week was actually this uh, YouTube link that I saw through some social media, a, a shorter portion of, that is essentially Arnold Schwarzenegger's commencement address from 2017 to the University of Houston. And he's, he talks about, um, he's not a self-made man. He did it with a lot of help of others. And I think it ties in and resonates with what we said earlier, which is when we're all in this together on production, you know, so 
uh, if we can distribute these different things through good practices and frameworks and all that kind of stuff, um, we could achieve some some really cool things. And and uh, so yeah, I think I think that's my other pick for this week is the teamwork that makes the dream work as the rhyme works. <laughs> so thanks. Awesome. How about you, Jeff? Right. So, you know, I'm going to throw one in there just to sort of follow up from, from what Tyler was talking about. So recently I had bought a second, I've got a set of like, you know, 20 volt tools that are around and, you know, you, you, you jump with one. I, I use black and Decker, but you know, whatever. Um, and one thing I, I realized, I, I, you know, sort of watched some other people and like, well, you know, a second drill with the second, with the same power supply means that I don't have to keep changing out bits and all that. And I can sort of just go from one tool to the next. And wow, that makes life so much quicker. So, you know, projects can go so much faster. It's a little thing, but it's amazing how much less effort, um, you know, you can sort of put out there to, to get something done. So I'm going to throw that out there because not only the batteries, but sometimes just having the tools that you can interchange the batteries between. Um, really amazing stuff. So that's, uh, you know, uh, you just thought, made me think about that, Tyler. But one other thing I was going to throw out there was um, another book pick that I really like. Uh, I read it a few years ago, but I think it's, um, I was just reminded of it a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a Patrick Lencioni book. A lot of people, when they think about him, think about like the five dysfunctions of a team, I think, or the advantage is another one. But he's written several books. One of them is Getting Naked. Um, yeah, there you go. So Getting Naked is a great book about consulting and about like basically just putting out value, giving, you know, sort of just asking the dumb questions, sometimes making yourself a bit vulnerable in front of a client by doing that, by sort of, you know, not show, showing that you don't always have all the answers, but you're just asking the really simple, basic, dumb questions that make the client think and say, hey, we hadn't really talked about that before. No one's ever brought that up. And it starts this whole conversation and you're basically just adding value from day one, even before you have a signed contract in place. It's all these different ideas that are really sort of counterintuitive to the way most consulting firms operate. Um, and I love it. It's a, it's a great, it's a business fable. So it reads really easily, really quickly. Um, and it's, 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 it's great. It's refreshing. Um, and it's just a, it's a really interesting approach that he has. Awesome. Talia, how about you? Um, I think my pick, so the first one is a book by Gary Vaynerchuk, Jab, 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 Right Hook. It's like a social media strategy book. And since, since this is my first role as a developer advocate, um, I felt that it, it, it was beneficial. My manager recommended it to me and it um, really helped with like what to post on Twitter and um, how to like engage with, you know, the right people. So I, I loved that book. Um, and then I also started some courses from um, a developer who I found on Twitter. His name is Wes Boss. Um, apparently, he's like a big deal. But um, I started some of his uh, JavaScript and React courses. And I am following along really great. I'm learning a lot. So shout out to Wes Boss. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, and on a personal note, uh, just so our listeners know, I'm going to be taking a break for about four weeks after this episode just to focus on some other things that need my attention. Uh, but I look forward to being back. Yeah, we, we'll miss you and we'll be glad when you can join us again. Yep, absolutely. But enjoy uh, you know, the month of July anyway. Thank you. <laughs> yep. 
And I got to go get some AAA batteries. We all know. That, so. <laughs> all right. Go, go get your batteries. Go and, eat them. Okay. Uh, Stace, don't, did you say don't eat them? Oh, I would never eat them. They're not that tasty. What are you talking about? What? <laughs> it was sparky. Okay. I, I don't even know what I heard. Anyway, uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. And we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.